Henry Ford understood, you know, early in the 20th century, why he chose to pay workers a, a decent wage so that there would be people who could afford to buy automobiles once they were mass produced. You know, my father's family emigrated from Georgia to Detroit, River Rouge, Michigan, to work at the Ford Motor Company. Uh, that's where my granddad worked for 30 years. Uh, and that was a springboard for him and for our family into uh, first the working and then the, the middle class. Again, there were inequities. Black workers, for instance, had to work in the foundry, which is where my, my granddad worked uh, his entire career. But we see that where the, the door to opportunity was cracked open a bit, uh, Americans of all backgrounds have always rushed to, to get in the door. And I think we have to it really focus on throwing that door wide open so that people can walk through. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Hi there, and welcome to Infinite Earth Radio, where each week we interview thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. In today's bonus episode, we share a short clip from an interview we did last year with Alan Jenkins, the executive director and co-founder of the Opportunity Agenda, an organization that calls itself a social justice communication lab. They are doing great work, and you are definitely going to want to learn more about them and take advantage of the free resources they have available on their website. So let's get right to Alan. If I could just jump in uh, to uh, agree with the the point about uh, not just creating consumers, but creating, uh, you know, investing in in educated consumers who can spend and save and be part of of the economy. Uh, That's something that Henry Ford understood, you know, early in the 20th century, why he chose to pay workers a a decent wage so that there would be people who could afford to buy automobiles once they were mass produced. You know, my father's family emigrated from Georgia to Detroit, River Rouge, Michigan, to work at the Ford Motor Company. Uh, That's where my granddad worked for 30 years. Uh, And that was a springboard for him and for our family into uh, first the working and then the, the middle class. Again, there were inequities. Black workers, for instance, had to work in the foundry, which is where my, my granddad worked uh, his entire career. But we see that where the, the door to opportunity was cracked open a bit, uh, Americans of all backgrounds have always rushed to, to get in the door. And I think we have to it really focus on throwing that door wide open so that people can walk through. So related to that, that very point, Alan, yesterday in the Washington Post, they had a report entitled Working Minority Families Lag Behind White Ones in Every State. And there was some pretty you know, devastating statistics about the, the depth of the economic inequality, but that it has spread and deepened during the, the recent recession. So you have a lot of efforts and initiatives underway at the Opportunity Agenda. And I'm wondering if you could speak to how you think that work can help us understand this gap but also what we can do to address it. So if you could talk to us a little bit about your mapping social justice initiative, the state of opportunity from poverty to opportunity, the home opportunity initiative, what are they trying to do and how do they fit together? Well, stepping back for a moment, it's, it's kind of important to to recognize what 
this ideal of opportunity. This is the notion that everyone deserves a fair chance to achieve his or her full potential. And that what you look like, what accent you have, your, your background should not determine your ability to accomplish your dreams and contribute fully to our society. When it comes to the, the wealth inequality that you described, Bernice, I mean, we see a, a, a number of dynamics going on. Some are historical. So we know, for example, that African-Americans were not able, were prevented by a variety of, of mechanisms, some governmental and some private, from fully participating in the and accessing the stepping stones to opportunity. I mentioned the, the GI Bill mortgage discrimination, wage discrimination, educational segregation. Uh, and that relates to the building of intergenerational wealth. Wealth is the, uh, the notion of savings minus debt. And so uh, African-Americans are, are frequently, even those, who, uh, those of us who have equal wages to our white counterparts, lack that historical building of, of assets and wealth. That's part of the gap. It's also the case that there continues to be uh, discrimination in employment and other aspects of life. Sometimes it's intentional, kind of old school bigotry, but just as often, perhaps more often in the 21st century, uh, it's uh, implicit bias that uh, decision makers may not even be aware of. So, for example, there's a lot of research showing that when uh, large numbers of employers are given uh, resumes, that identical resumes that have the names John and Jane are more likely likely to get callbacks than those same resumes when the names are Jamal and Keisha connoting African-Americans. Uh, and so it's not that we think that all of those employers are intentionally trying to judge black folks more harshly, although probably a couple are, but rather that all of us are carrying around subconscious stereotypes and those frequently get imported into very important decisions, uh, employment decisions, housing decisions, policing decisions, and when somebody is considered to be suspicious or, or dangerous. So turning to your question about our initiatives, our three main initiatives right now are econ economic opportunity with a, a significant focus on addressing poverty criminal justice reform, looking at policing and, and mass incarceration and people returning from prison and what the alternatives are there to make sure that everyone can be uh, participate and that we can be about public safety and equal justice and immigrants and opportunity, which is looking at the ways that we can make sure that we're best integrating immigrants into our, our social fabric and economic engine, and particularly that around the border, we're making sure that that is done in a way that upholds human rights and public safety for everyone. We view those as three very crucial gateways to opportunity for all and crucial to the, the success and future of our country. They're not the only ones. They're, of course, you know, education, very important issue with respect to, to opportunity and our national progress. But we've chosen those three because we think as an organization, the opportunity agenda can make a difference there. What kind of response are you getting from people at the local level? I'm on your listserv and I see a lot of trainings that you do, a lot of media training, but also a lot of organizing training. How important is giving people the tools to organize in their own communities around this, these issues? It's crucial. I mean, we find that often, you know, in our communities and at the national level, we're really polarized in our communication, whereas people often agree at the values level, the vast majority of Americans 
Americans believe that everyone should have opportunity and that that, that opportunity should be equal, irrespective of, of what you look like or where you come from. There's a lot of disagreement about whether opportunity is equal, what are the best solutions for addressing it. And we find that in the 21st century, those of us who are about expanding opportunity have to improve the way we communicate on those issues so that we're inspiring the base of people who already agree with us to take action, but also persuading those people who may be skeptical. For instance, those people who believe in equal opportunity but don't necessarily see the unequal barriers that so many Americans of, of all races and genders are facing, that don't necessarily understand some of the policies in our society that can keep people poor who are, are struggling to to move to the next level. And so communicating with values, highlighting those structural obstacles, and perhaps most importantly, highlighting solutions. What are the alternatives? So for example, thinking about criminal justice and alternatives to incarceration. When Americans hear about some of the alternatives of ensuring that people have drug treatment, that folks have mental health services, that we can use principles of restorative justice and, and making people whole and community service and other approaches, the significant support for alternatives to incarceration for lots and lots of different folks and situations. But if the, the options seem like no accountability or prison, then many Americans will choose prison. So we have to be about lifting up those solutions and giving people a, a path forward. We have a policy arm, and so part of that work is to make sure that we are lifting up the solutions that are working around the country. But the core of our work is communications and working with folks to tell that story. And one, one other thing I'd note there is that at our website, which is opportunityagenda.org, one of our most popular tools is a social justice communication toolkit. Uh, and this is really advice based on public opinion research and media analysis and 10 years of work with people around the country on how to build public support for addressing social problems and for promoting social justice solutions. You're trying to give people the skills and the tools to be able to lead this conversation at the local level, but also to be around that, you know, that table where decisions get made so that those inequities from the past cannot be carried forward into future generations. Would that be a fair assessment, Alan? Absolutely. I, you know, just a quick example, one of our most gratifying lines of work, we, we were working recently with a, an organization that is led by folks who are formerly incarcerated themselves who are working on criminal justice reform and to increase opportunities for people coming out of prison to reenter society and be fully part of the economy and, and their communities and families. And, you know, you just saw the light bulbs going on of folks realizing that they are themselves the most powerful stories and storytellers about why we have to invest in effective ways for people to reenter society after prison and jail. But, you know, they don't always have their voice yet. And so working with them to tell that story has been phenomenal. Working with immigrant communities in, in the border state on how to promote solutions that you know, keep us all safe, that promote opportunity and uphold human rights for everyone, extremely rewarding work. 
Well, related to that, just yesterday, the Maryland State Senate passed a bill out of the Senate. It now has to be voted on by the Assembly, but to restore voting rights to people coming out of prison at the moment at which they come out of prison. And it has passed overwhelmingly in the Senate. We'll see what happens in the Assembly. But in in the Assembly, it already has 50 co-sponsors across party line. But I think people are really coming to recognize that when you keep people out of the very basic necessities of being civically engaged and being a part of a community, it has cascading effects. Absolutely. Democratic voice is part of the stake that we all have in our communities. The idea that we have a say in the decisions that affect us is uh, absolutely crucial. And that is especially important for folks who have served their time, are coming out, often facing tough obstacles to fully reenter and participate. Letting them know that their voice matters is in all of our interests. And it's really crucial to what a thriving democracy is about. Ellen, I, I want to ask you a couple of questions about the criminal justice work. But but before I do, I want to ask you more about your home opportunity initiative and just some, you know, some experiences that I've had moving from New York to here in Prince George's County, Maryland. So I've been here for about 18 years now. And it's really interesting to see that residential segregation, which I think we all are aware is still alive and well, but it's also alive and well at the upper income levels. And so here in Prince George's County, which is, they tell me, the most affluent African-American community and county in the United States, we find that we have the highest rate of home foreclosure of any county in Maryland, including Baltimore County, which is fairly astonishing. And that even at the upper income income levels that folks are still finding themselves the recipients of subprime mortgages, even in 2015. And it's creating a bit of a crisis here in Prince George's County. To me, that signals that these issues are ever much still alive, that even though we've come through this major housing crisis, it's still perpetuating itself in terms of inequity and subprime mortgages are still alive and well. How, do, how does your work and the Home Opportunity Initiative of the Opportunity Agenda speak to that? Well, yeah, I'm afraid that that's really true. So home opportunity is the idea that uh, everyone should have a, a fair shot at a home that is safe, that is affordable, that is sustainable and under fair terms. And that what you look like, where you come from, your accent should not uh, influence that opportunity. And yet we see that that has not happened, that the economic crisis was caused in part because of uh, predatory practices by banks. And to your point, Bernice, we saw that, in fact, upper income African-Americans and Latinos were more likely to have a big gap in their access to market rate loans, more likely to have been marketed subprime loans in comparison to white folks of the same income than when you look at lower income folks. So this was really about race. Certainly, um, income is relevant, but this is controlling for aspects of you know creditworthiness and all of that. Uh, African-Americans in particular have been, and some of the early data suggests, still are disproportionately being marketed risky subprime loans. And with some of the consequences that you described, all communities have been hurt by foreclosures, uh, communities of of all races and and backgrounds, but uh, African-Americans and Latinos have have in particular been uh, especially hurt by foreclosures. 
Fortunately, we know of some specific solutions that can make a big difference, and those range from counseling to adjusting unfair subprime rates to market rates. We worked with a range of groups to create a document called the Compact for Home Opportunity, which you can also find at our website, opportunityagenda.org, or I think just by Googling Compact for Home Opportunity, which lists several dozen measures that can be taken to address uh, not just subprime lending issues, but affordability of housing for everyday working Americans, housing discrimination in its various forms, and a number of other issues. Most of those reforms are being used and are working in some parts of the country. So in a lot of ways, the goal is to expand the use of those protections and those innovative solutions so that everyone has a fair shot at a home for their families that is affordable and sustainable under fair conditions and connected to opportunity, connected to good schools, to public transportation, to health care. That's what the American dream is, is really about in the end. Yet another piece in the Washington Post last week, big bold headlines here that there is no low-income or affordable housing available in Washington, D.C. anymore. So people are already paying 40, 50, 60 percent of their income um, for housing. But for those people who are at the lower end of the income scale, there is no housing available to them. And I know that's not just happening in D.C. It's certainly happening in New York and so many other places. But what are the opportunities that people have, Alan, if they don't have access to the most basic need, which is secure housing? Well, I think it's it's incumbent upon all of us to make sure that we are, as a society, and that we are pushing government to invest in affordable housing. And there are a number of ways of doing that. So one of the, the most effective is inclusionary zoning in which a municipality, a city or town will say, uh, in order for a developer to develop luxury or, or upper income housing, they have to make sure that they're creating a certain percentage of affordable housing, including you know, housing that is affordable for low-income folks and, and working-class folks. New York City has been doing that aggressively, and we see that you know, it's, it has had no negative impact on the economy and, in fact, is creating more opportunities for workers, the people that, you know, need to power our economic engine. So, you know, that's one strategy that's been used. Trust funds, affordable housing trust fund is an approach that has been used. I think there are a lot of possibilities. It's a problem that requires us to come together. And one of the ways we come together is through government and also through nonprofits. Uh, this is going to be a very difficult problem for, for an individual to solve. And consequently, we see people moving farther and farther away from their workplace, which erodes their quality of life when they've got to commute for two hours each way every day. They can't go to the PTA meetings. They can't be a part of their community. So it, it's something that we have to invest in as a, a community and recognize that, again, it's in all of our interests to do so. It's in my interest to see that my neighbors, my coworkers can have affordable housing that's close enough and, and connected enough to jobs and opportunity for them to thrive. Well, we could we could really talk about this issue for a very, very, very long time because it has so many so many tentacles, right, including the environmental burdens of people not being able to afford to live where they work and having to move further and further out. The environmental consequences of that are huge. Thank you all for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this bonus episode. We look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. 
Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, the Local Government Commission, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at Infin Earth Radio. 